When I was a little boy, uh, I wasn't that little. I was, I guess I was 14 or so, 13, 14. Um, I used to build model airplanes. Um, uh, well, actually, build, build models. And I built a model airplane, um, a really fancy one, that could actually had a little motor on it uh, that when you put fuel in it, it would fly. Um, now, it wasn't radio-controlled like they are a lot of Mara nowadays, and they had radio-controlled uh, airplanes back then, but this one had a um, had a uh, cables that went from your hand out to the airplane, and they were like from here to the back of the room, say, uh, for between the person that was controlling the plane and the plane, and you were supposed to go around like this. You got dizzy after a while, but uh, and the plane would fly, and you could make it go up and down, and it was pretty fancy for me. And I spent a lot of time working on that plane when I was a boy and getting it all ready and uh, putting the en- mounting the engine onto the plane and all that. Uh, and I was really excited to fly this plane. Um, very excited about that first flight. Well, I needed help with this first flight because I didn't know how to man the controls very well. So I asked my dad if he would fly the plane for me. And he said yes, and... We went out into this big field and started the airplane up and um, my father went like this and the plane took off as he kind of pulled on it like this. It went up like this and went up like this a few times and then it went up and then it went right down into the ground. And the wings snapped off it. By the way, it was about this big. The wings were about this big. Wings snapped right off it. I can't tell you how bad that made me feel that day. All that work and my plane would never be the same again. It was destroyed, or so I thought. It actually was repaired uh, by a gentleman who knew how to do that kind of thing, and he was kind enough to repair that plane for me. I still have it up in my attic at at my house here today uh, that I live in here in Lufkin. Um, Actually, I didn't have the courage to fly it again, but it is repaired. (laughs) But I never thought that would be the same again. I thought it was lost. I thought it was gone, never to return, never to be flyable again. But children, it is flyable. Again, and they have the engine parts too. The engine works. So it was made whole again, and it was restored to me. I bring this up, this illustration of my my plane, because God actually gave humanity the universe to rule over. He made mankind, all of us, collectively, and in Adam in particular, uh, because he was the first man, but he made all of us to to be rulers of the universe from here on earth. He gave us that great, great privilege to be his royal servants, ruling in his place on his behalf and subduing the creation to the glory of God to himself and to ourselves and and thus to God. But you know what, children? That glorious privilege that we originally had in Adam when we were first created and that Adam had, it was lost. That dignity, that destiny was lost by Adam and by us in Adam. You know why? The S word. Sin. Sin. And this passage speaks about and and talks about the wonderful glorious um, uh, privilege, and I'm going to call it destiny. You'll hear me, children, use the word destiny in the, in the points that I'm going to make. But it means the privilege that we had to rule on God's behalf. That was lost by our sin. And this passage alludes to that and speaks of that. But then this, our passage also talks about what God did about that. He didn't leave things destroyed the way they were. He didn't leave our destiny 
forever taken from us. But he actually gave it back to us. He repaired the damage that we did in Jesus. And this passage also points to Jesus, who is the the second Adam, who succeeded where we utterly failed in the first Adam. And that's what this passage is about. I don't remember if I talked about this in the first few sermons. I'm gonna, I may have, but I don't think I did. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a brief background on, on the book of Hebrews itself. Um, and if you weren't here, then you'll, uh, if you have heard this, then I'm sorry. But if you weren't here or don't remember this, uh, from when we've been in Hebrews in the past, you'll get up to speed. This book was almost certainly not written by the Apostle Paul. Now our Puritan forefathers, whom we love and appreciate, uh, uh, they were gloriously godly men um, and knowledgeable and wise. Many of them thought that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, I hate to differ with them on that, but uh, uh, I do not think Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, most modern scholars do not. For one thing, the language found in the book of Hebrews is quite a bit superior to Paul's Greek. Paul was... Uh, Decent at Greek. It wasn't his first language, probably. It was the second language, but he was, he was a good writer, Greek writer. He, his Greek was better than Mark's Greek, for example. Mark's was even simpler. But, uh, Paul's Greek was good, but it wasn't the quality of the writer of the Hebrews' Greek. They don't read the same in, in the original language, uh, in terms of vocabulary or even sentence structure. Uh, the author of this, uh, book, the ultimate author, author of course, is the Holy Spirit. But the human author was well-educated, he was cultured, he was a Greek speaker, his first language almost certainly, and he was Jewish. He was a Hebrew Christian. Uh, he was a very religious man, he was a pastor, he was a theologian, and he was one who knew the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. I'm going to refer to that more than once in the sermon, so you just need to know the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. And he knew the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, like the back of his hand. And he quotes from it extensively. Not from the Hebrew Bible, although the Greek Bible and the Hebrew Bible are very similar, of course, uh, just in different languages. But there are some differences in the, the Septuagint uh, from the what's called the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text that has come down to us um, and uh, that... Uh, most of the time is the more accurate, um, we, we, uh, tra- uh, the, uh, more accurately reflects what was originally written by Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on and so forth. At any rate, uh, the uh, author of the Hebrews was writing to a small house church, probably in a big, uh, in, in a in a big city, which was probably Rome. Uh, probably uh, Jewish Christians in Rome to whom he's writing. We don't know that for sure, but it's a good guess. Um, and by the way, this b- thing that we call a book um, is not a book. It's not even a letter like Paul's writings to the uh, Corinthians or to the uh, Philippians or to the Colossians. Rather, Hebrews is almost certainly, it really is, a sermon. It is a sermon. Um, it doesn't uh, act like a letter. It doesn't look like the letter. It has the marks of a sermon. Uh, in it, and so uh, most have deduced that it is in fact a sermon rather than a letter, like so many of Paul's writings were, or, or uh, others as well. Now, what has the author uh, of this book said so far in his sermon, which is to say, in the first chapter and then the first few verses of the second chapter? Well, he said a few things. First of all, he taught us and uh, pointed out that God the Father, who spoke at many times uh, and in many different ways to uh, through men in the past, he has now, when the uh, writer of the Hebrews is writing, he has now, at the dawn of the New Testament age, spoken his final and his ultimate message or word through his divine, incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and reigning Son, the Lord Jesus. And verses 1 through 4 uh, make that point eloquently. Also, he has made the point uh, in the latter part of chapter 1 that the enthroned, the exalted Son, the God-man, is far superior to the angelic host in every way. Angels are mere creatures 
whom Jesus himself, or God the Son himself, made. And so he is far superior to what he has created, even though those angelic creatures, angels, uh, were glorious and are glorious, but they are mere creations of him who is the uncaused cause and the creator of all, the second person of the Godhead. Well then, in chapter 2, the first four verses, and I read them to you here a little while ago, he takes uh, these doctrinal truths that he expounded in the first chapter, and he applies them to his reader's situation. Um, and what he says is he basically warns them in those first four verses of this chapter of the terrible consequences of neglecting the message of salvation proclaimed by the divine son described in chapter one and of his, uh, the message that is also being proclaimed, the same message by his chosen instruments, the apostles. He says, don't forsake this word that has come to you through Christ and his extension, the extensions of his ministry and the apostolic band. So that's what we've looked at so far. Well, the writer then, in the passage that we're looking at today, chapter, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2, he teaches us three things, as I see it. My, my organization of the passage anyway. First of all, the writer teaches us that the glorious destiny for which man was originally created was marveled at by David in Psalm 8. It was marveled at. The thought of humanity's destiny as originally created was marveled at by the psalmist King David. Secondly, in this passage, in Hebrews, we see, as the writer teaches us, that the glorious destiny for which man was originally created was forfeited by Adam's sin. And then, thirdly, thankfully, there is a third point that he teaches us, and that is that the glorious destiny for which man was originally created was re-secured by Jesus' obedience. Those are the three points that we're going to look at in our remaining time together. First of all, the glorious destiny for which man was originally created was marveled at by King David. Uh, and of course, by quoting King David's psalm that he, King David wrote, uh, Psalm 8, the writer to the Hebrews, the writers of this book, or this sermon, uh, also is uh, marveling as well at the destiny that God created man originally for uh, that is articulated in Psalm 8. He quotes the psalm uh, here in verses uh, 6 and 7 and the first part of verse 8. What he says is, the psalmist and, and, and also, um, I mean, David and also the writer of the Hebrews, through quoting him, says that mankind was made only a little lower than the angels. Remember, the angels were just talked about in chapter 1. And he says the, uh, the sun is far superior to the angels. But the angels... Uh, but man is, mankind was made just a little lower than the angels. So, of course, uh, God is far superior. The triune God is far superior to us as well. But just a little lower than the angels. He says there in verse 7, What is man that thou dost remember? Verse 6, What is man that thou dost remember him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Verse 7, Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. And I'll stop there for the moment. The angels, as originally created, were more glory, more exalted, I should say, in terms of visible appearance and abilities as well than man was at the time of man's creation. The angels are more visibly glorious than we are, as evidenced from passages of scripture that speak of their appearance. Uh, and also they possess far greater mobility than we do and power than we do. And indeed, than Adam did as well. They fly. We don't. Um, but, while that is true, while they are in some sense, in some ways more exalted than we are, and are created with greater visible glory than we have, it was mankind, not the angels, who were created uh, in the image and likeness of God. We were created in the image and likeness of God, not the angels. 
And that's the point of the psalm that David wrote and the point that the writer of the Hebrews is now making by quoting from that psalm. Man alone had and still has, I'll get to that, the necessary capacities and authority or I'll just leave it at capacities, has the necessary capacities to act as God's vice-regent on earth. A vice-regent is an underlord ruling on behalf of an overlord. The Lord God is the overlord. He is the Lord of lords. We are one of those lords that serve the Lord by um, by uh, ruling on his behalf and in his name um, as His uh, those made in his image. You see, God created man for the purpose of ruling over the earth, indeed over the whole universe in some sense, from earth, on God's behalf. This is, this is central to our purpose, is to rule to the glory of God over that which we have been given to rule over. This is the point that David is making in Psalm 8. The psalm, again, that the writer of the Hebrews is quoting here. Uh, uh, Royal dignity, you see, royal dignity, kingly dignity and authority was conferred upon Adam, the first man, at the point when he was made uh, in the garden. Adam was created to rule as lord, under lord, over all the earth and indeed over the entire cosmos by extension, as evidenced by the psalmists, by David's language in verses 7 and 8. Let me start at verse 7 again, uh, which is quoting from Hebrews, I mean, it's not Hebrews, uh, from Psalm 8. Uh, I think it's verse, anyway, it doesn't make any difference what it is in the psalm. Here's verse 7. Thou hast made him, man, for a little while, we're going to get back to that in a moment, Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. And here it is, thou hast crowned, who do you crown? You crown a king, right? Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Notice over all the works of thy hands are implied there. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That's what happens with kings. Kings have subjects. Well, our subjects happen to be all of the creation as originally created in the garden before the fall. That was our situation. That's what God created us for. And this language, it's based, uh, the language that David uses in the psalm, (coughs) excuse me, is based upon words uttered by God himself back in Genesis 1. Turn with me there. Genesis 1, verse 26. (coughs) And following. He says, um, now this is the inner Trinitarian council talking here, the, the persons of the Godhead. Then God uh, said, let us, there it is, the plurality uh, in God's personhood, not in his being. We learn from the Athanasian Creed, God, there's only one divine being. But there are three personal distinctions in his oneness. So here it is, uh, right here in chapter 1 is alluded to of the first uh, book of the Bible. But anyway, then God said, let us make man in our own image. Uh, in our image, excuse me, according to our likeness. And let them rule, there it is, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve and all those he represented in in them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And notice, Subdue it. Rule over it. And and, and he goes on, and that's the next word he used. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. You see, David is reflecting that language in when he says what he says in the psalm that the writer of the Hebrews is quoting, Psalm 8. So, before we go on to the next couple of points, the last two points, I want to talk a little bit about the implications of what I've just said to you. Mankind, in the garden, as originally created, we were created, all of us, in Adam, to rule on God's behalf, to bring glory to him by our ruling, by the way we rule. You see, we are not humans. We are not just one more creature that God threw together. 
I didn't throw together anything, but you know what I mean. Uh, we are not just one more creature that God made, a little more intelligent perhaps than the others, but not otherwise not different. That is not true. No, man is light years ahead of all the other creatures, including apes and monkeys that the evolutionists would have us believe are relatives, which they aren't. And we are light years ahead not only of the other creatures, but of the angels, of the angelic host, Gabriel, Michael, and others whose names we don't know. In terms of our nature, our authority, our dignity, and our worth to God. Jesus didn't die for the angels, you see. Even didn't die for the fallen angels. He died for us, mankind. We're worth more than the angels are to God. You are worth more than the angels are to God. Something that David marveled at, and the writer of the Hebrews as well marveled at, that our, our dignity is just stunning as originally created. You know, many of us have a tendency to feel a little sorry for ourselves and beat ourselves up on account of different aspects of the who we are, our personalities. Our, uh, and there's things to be knocked about, you know, sinful aspects of our, of our life. But, but just things like that we can't help like, uh, or that, that are not necessarily of a moral quality, like a personality type or like our physical features, you know, we uh, we get some of us um, get sorry about the way we look. I used to, you know, I've got a pretty good sized nose on my head, and I say, oh, I got a big nose. I got a big nose. I don't like my big nose. Some of us, uh, I'm too skinny. Well, I'm not skinny enough. You know, uh, I'm not pretty as pretty as so and so, or as handsome as so and so. Or some of us beat up on ourselves about our perceived um, mental abilities or uh, academic abilities. Um, you know, I'd forget my head if it weren't attached. Kind of comments that we some of us make to ourselves. Or I uh, wish I was smarter than my dog. You know, that kind of thing. And some of us, you know, other aspects of our makeup, uh, I'm just too emotional. Or I'm not emotional enough. Rather than focusing, folks, on what we are not, on our deficiencies or our perceived deficiencies, you and I, this text reminds us, should marvel at and be grateful for what we are. That we're not angels. That we are God's handiwork. His workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians 2. You are God's workmanship. Oh, yes, you're a sinner, as am I. We're going to get to that. But man as man is a beautiful thing. And I mean women in there, too, by the way. I'm not going to bow to the their language of uh, political correctness. Man as man is dignified. You have great dignity and worth. Otherwise, God wouldn't have made you. And he'd made you a toad or an angel. But no, he made you man. And woman and child. Human. Made in his own image. You see, we need to focus on what we are. Um, dignified servants of God to rule over his world um, to his glory. That's, that's our calling in life, all of us. And we need to think on that and not focus on the superficial nonsense that we so often focus on. Okay, so what about that glorious destiny and dignity and worth for which man was created? What, what happened to it? Did anything happen to it? The glorious dignity, point two, for which man was originally created, was undone or forfeited by Adam's sin. And lest we just blame Adam, that's also our sin in Adam. 
we are Adam. We sinned in Adam. And so we get blame as, just like Adam did, even though he was the, the first, uh, first man. <clears throat> yeah, he sinned in the garden. And this horribly tragic event is alluded to. Just It's an illusion. It's not a, didn't, he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but it's alluded to clearly by the writer to the, um, writer to the Hebrews here um, in the last half of verse 8. So let me read verse 8 again to you. Uh, not the part that's uh, the quote, quote from uh, the tail end of the quote from Psalm 8, which is, Thou hast put all things under in subjection under his feet. Well, I'll read that. Okay, there I just did. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his, man's feet. And then he says this, For in subjecting all things to him, to mankind, he, God, left nothing that is not subject to him. Sounds really great, right? And then he says, but now, as opposed to back then in the garden, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to man, to him. Something's happened. Something's amiss. There's a jarring disconnect between the first thing that I stated there, and for all things, uh, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. There's a d- jarring disconnect between that statement and between the next statement, which is, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Wait a minute, that seems like a flat contradiction. No, it's not. It's just talking about two different points in time, before and after the fall. William Lane comments, he says, the extravagance of the statement in the first part of verse 8, which is that uh, he left nothing that is not subjected, in, not subject to him, to man. He says the extravagance of, this, of that statement is mocked by human experience, our experience. You see, all mankind, as we, man's fall into sin, rather, is the reason we do not see all things subjected to us at present. Man was created for the purpose of ruling over the earth and indeed ultimately the cosmos. But Adam, we in Adam, broke the covenant that God had made with him in the garden, a covenant of works, of obedience, if you will. And when Adam did that, He brought himself and all those on whose behalf he was acting, us, all of mankind, his descendants, under a terrible curse. God's curse that we actually looked at, a reference to in uh, Sunday school there, in Revelation, for those of you that were in Sunday school, Revelation 22, that the curse is finally lifted. Because there was a curse until the new heavens and the new earth that uh, Revelation 22 is talking about. And that curse, of course, is articulated uh, by God himself uh, back in Genesis chapter 3. I'll read that real quickly. Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. He says, first he, after, after cursing the serpent, God says in Genesis 3, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet... Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The substance of this curse that God placed upon humanity, Adam and his descendants, us, was this. All things that were once subject to you, Adam, and to your descendants, will no longer be fully, willingly, or perpetually subject to you. 
The ground will no longer easily yield its productivity to you as it did before the fall. Women will no longer consistently and joyfully subject themselves, be subject to their husbands. They will have a tendency to want to usurp the authority of their husbands. That's what's alluded to when it says there in verse 16, yet your desire shall be for your husband. That's an allusion to that. It's not politically correct for me to say that, but the Bible says it, so that does, that ends it. And also man's body. Our, our own bodies will no longer be perpetually subject to our own will. We don't want to die, do we? None of us want to die or grow old, and yet here we are, dying and growing, growing old and dying. Yeah, that's the right order. I don't want that, but it doesn't make any difference. My, body's not, I'm not sub, my body isn't subject to me anymore, nor is it for you. This shows, folks, this, the effects of the curse show the enormous destructive nature of sin. The glorious destiny of the entire human race, our destiny, was upended by one man's rebellion and our rebellion in that one man. Sin was not only catastrophic and is catastrophic for mankind as a whole, but it is also personally devastating for us as individuals. The wages of sin is death. Not just a reference to the fact that we are one day going to die, but everything about sin brings death. Even as you breathe, when you sin, Death is at work in you. The curse is is bearing down on you because of the choices that you are making to rebel against God when you or I do, and we all do at times. Death is, you know, temptation is so alluring to feel a certain way that we feel justified in feeling or think a certain way or to say certain things that we think we are justified in saying or not say certain things that we um, that you know we don't want to say or do things that we shouldn't do or leave undone things we should do and we we're tempted to do these things and we do them because sin is pleasurable passingly pleasurable says the writer of Hebrews, but it is pleasurable, otherwise we wouldn't do it. But it's death. It's a decision of death. There's an awful price for sin. Even as for Christians, there's an awful price for choosing sin over obedience to God. This passage and the which alluding to the curse and the effects of the curse allude to that, make that point by implication. Sin never pays. Don't ever think that it does. It never pays. But you think it's going to pay anyway. So to borrow a question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer to that question is, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all
here in verse 9, the writer of the Hebrews uh, applies the words of Psalm 8, not to the first Adam, but to Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls the last Adam over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, we're not going to turn there, but but the writer of the Hebrews here, he applies the words of, of, ver, of verse of Psalm 8, and here are the words that specifically that I am talking about, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. You see that in uh, verse 7, the first part of verse 7 there of our text, thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. And he applies that not to Adam in the garden, but to the last Adam, to Jesus. Now, Adam in the garden, the first Adam, was the representative, the first representative head of humanity, of the entire human race, in fact. He represented us as our covenant head in the covenant that we call, uh, the Bible doesn't use this, but the Bible doesn't use the word trinity either, but it's a biblical concept, so is the covenant of works. The covenant of works, and Adam was representing all of all those whom he represented, which was all of humanity, in that covenant that God had made with him. Uh, you can eat of all the trees of the garden, save one. The moment you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That was all there was to the covenant. Obey me. I'm just telling you, don't touch that tree. Obey. Adam didn't. We all know what happened. As a result of Adam's failure to obey God in that covenant... Of, of obedience or works, he and all those whom he represented, among other things, lost the unchallenged dominion over the earth and the universe that Adam enjoyed briefly prior to his fall and our fall. That went away. There was unchallenged dominion. Now there is no longer unchallenged dominion. Bears kill people. Sharks eat people. It wasn't true before the fall. Snakes bite people and all that kind of stuff. Creation is fighting back now. It's angry at us. It has a right to be. It's under a curse too. The curse that we brought to the creation. Now, of course, the curse is not uh, the, the, the inanimate creation is not alive. But you know what I mean. God makes it so that the creation appears to fight back at our dominion, and it does. But what the first Adam lost by his wicked choice to disobey God, the second Adam re-secured for us by his perfect obedience to God in the covenant of grace. Jesus was the second representative of a new humanity, a different humanity than the first one. And it was and is, and he was and is able to fill this role of uh, vice regent and ruler over all of the cosmos, subduing it to himself. He is able to fill this role on account of the fact that he is who he is. He is 100% God, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, and 100% man, as we learned in the, uh, and as so well, um, described by the Athanasian Creed that we read together earlier. And he had to be both God and man in order to accomplish what he accomplished. And what he accomplished was he regained for the first representative, what the first representative of the human race lost. Our destiny to be rulers. And how did he do this? Verse 9 tells us, But we do not see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So we do see. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. In other words, he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that he endured as uh, in obedience to God on our behalf. And notice who he did this for. Start over. I'm going to start over. But we do see him, capital H, uh, the quintessential man, the last Adam, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor 
Why? For what purpose? That by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Who is the everyone for whom the second Adam offered up his infinitely valuable life as a sacrifice to God? It's not all of mankind. If he had died for all of mankind, he would have purchased the pardon of all of mankind. No, he died for a subset of mankind, a new humanity, a different humanity, not every single last person descending from Adam's loins, but for all those who would look to the second Adam for reconciliation with God. Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus purchased our pardon and reconciliation with God, and by doing so, he re-secured for us, those who would look to him in faith, uh, that cosmic dominion which God originally intended for mankind to possess, but which we lost in the first Adam. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, now wait a second here, preacher. I'm a believer. Jesus... um, suffered and died and rose again for me because I'm trusting wholly in him for my salvation. Yet, there are weeds still growing in my garden. Termites are still trying to eat my house out from under me. My children don't always obey me when I tell them to do something. Clearly, not everything is subject to me right now, even though I'm a Christian. You're right. That's true. The creation is not yet fully subject to you and me and other believers. But it will be in due time. It will be. And that is a fact, and you're going to have to listen carefully now, because just before the end here, and we're nearing the end, I'm going to say something that requires careful listening. But... This is hinted at, the fact that we will reign with Christ and all will be subject to us in Christ when all is said and done. This is hinted at in verse 7. So again, back to verse 7, which is verse 5 of Psalm 8, because he's quoting from Psalm 8, but it's verse 7 in our text. He says in the first part of verse 7 there, quoting from Psalm 8, verse 5, Thou hast made him, and here he's talking about man, or is he? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now this is fascinating. Now the Hebrew text of Psalm 8, the Masoretic text that I mentioned earlier, that uh, David, David, the Masoretic text reflects what David wrote in Hebrew, The Hebrew text of Psalm 8 is most naturally translated this way. Uh, Just listen to me. Yet you shall, yet you has, you have been made, excuse me, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. The Hebrew naturally um, wants to be translated that way. You have made him a little lower than the angels, meaning in terms of your pecking order, in terms of being. Uh, you're, uh, he's just a little bit uh, less exalted than the angel is, type of thing. However, remember I said that the writer of the Hebrews writes in the Septuagint, uh, quotes from the Septuagint most of the time? He does, the, which is the Greek translation of the, Hebrew, uh, of the Hebrew that was originally written. It was probably written around 200 B.C., the Septuagint was, and both the Septuagint and this thing that I'm going to call the, the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, are both quoted by New Testament authors. Both of them are quoted by New Testament authors. And oftentimes there's almost no distinct, there's no, almost no difference between them. But sometimes there is not insignificant differences in the Greek text versus the Hebrew text. And so this, the writer of the Hebrews writes um, in the, uh, the, uses the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So, the Greek translation of Psalm 8, okay, in the Septuagint, which this author is quoting, 
can be translated either thou hast made him uh that where is it um thou hast made him a little lower than the angels the greek can say that be translated that way or the greek can be translated thou hast made him a little while lower than the angels context alone can determine the authors the holy spirit's the ultimate author his intended meaning right now look at context if you can translate two different ways and he's he's qu- quoting from the Septuagint, which means, by the way, whenever he's quoting from the Septuagint, that the Septuagint is inspired. Because the New Testament is inspired. This is inspired. And so he's quoting that. And so it can go either way. It can either be you've made him a little lower than the angels, or you've made him a little while lower than the angels. In this case, in the context here of what is being written by the, by the author of Hebrews... <coughs> Context favors the translation, thou hast made him a little while lower than the angels. You see, here's what's going on. Now here's the point. The writer of Hebrews is thinking about two men as he writes this. The first man that he's thinking about is the first Adam in the garden, immediately following his creation before the fall. He's the writer of the Hebrews, and the Holy Spirit is thinking about the original Adam. But he is also, they are also, thinking about the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who has restored what the first Adam lost in his fall for us. And the author of this sermon, we call Hebrews, uses the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, to read back into verse 5 of Psalm 8 that David wrote, a temporal meaning to it. In other words, not he he has made him a little lower than the angels, but he has made him a little while lower. He takes the Septuagint, the Greek, and the Holy Spirit, through all this, says there's a temporal meaning in what I meant when David was writing what I told him to write. The while belongs in there, is what I'm trying to say. And God determined it by putting it here and quoting from the Greek. Hope you understood all that. At any rate, he, the author, is using that for that purpose. Um, He sees in the Greek translation a divinely inspired allusion to the eventual restoration of mankind to a position above that of the angels. It happened to Jesus, the quintessential man, the God-man, at the time of his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Jesus is far more exalted than the angels. But it will also happen, remember he's speaking about both Adams now, it will also happen to those of us who are trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, our right standing before God, our forgiveness, when we reach heaven, at which point we will share in Jesus' dominion over the cosmos, which he now possesses in himself as the messianic king. Revelation 20, verse 4, makes this point. And we're almost done. And I saw... And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those... This is uh, Revelation 24. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we will do so on into eternity, beyond what that thousand-year period represented, as indicated elsewhere in the scripture. We reign, or will reign, fully, without challenge, because Christ now reigns fully, without challenge. And we will be in him fully, 
on that final day. But only if we are his. Only if we are trusting, resting in Jesus Christ, the God-man, this Jesus, not the, not the Arian Jesus that Bill talked about earlier, which, by the way, the Jehovah's Witness, that's their Jesus, created uh, a, a demonic Jesus, if I can put it that way, demonic representation of him. No, the, the God-man Jesus, who's the only way to heaven, the only way to be made right with God, it's only if you are trusting in him will this apply to you that you will reign with Christ. And of course, that reigning is not good. Well, we don't know how that, what shape that's going to take. I doubt it's going to be us barking orders at the, you know, at the goats and the sheep up in heaven, or in the new heavens and the new earth, but I don't know. We just don't know enough from Scripture to know what that form that's going to take. But the point is, we do know it's going to be glorious. And it's ours. Not because we earned it. We earned the exact opposite. But because Jesus earned it and loves us and has given it to those whom he gives in, to whom he gives a new heart. And those whom he's given a new heart to are those who trust in him. Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Not Jesus plus your baptism or Jesus plus your good works or Jesus plus something else, but Jesus. If you are trusting in Jesus alone, this is what awaits you. And and indeed, we begin to partake of that reigning with Christ, says Paul in Ephesians 1, even now. Yeah, it's not fully there, but we're we're partaking as because Christ we're united to Christ and he is reigning and he is subduing all of the creation to himself and we participate in that in a spiritual way in his reign even now but only if we trust in him do that if you've not done that let's pray